Have you ever tried to um, have you ever tried to sing songs of joy and gladness when you're just having a terrible day? Like I'm talking when it's just awful, or when you got terrible news about uh, a loved one's unexpected illness, or uh, you lost your job, or you, f- you found out some big change was happening in your life and there was nothing you could do about it. Has anybody ever really just said, I'm going to sing a happy song. <laughs> I think it's going to make me feel better. Has anybody really done that and it's worked? If you have, I'd love to know what song that is. Larry's saying, yeah. <laughs> I could see that, Larry. And you, I could see that. <laughs> I could see that. That's why you're special. That's why you're you. It's pretty hard, though. It's, it's actually, it's pretty hard. But yet, uh, this is the essence of this psalm that I'm going to read. This, you know, uh, all the prophecies that we've been reading about uh, during Advent have been about the Israelites being exiled, like their homeland being destroyed, and then they're captive, they're prisoner in a strange land, having just seen horrific things. It'd be pretty hard to sing a joyful song during that time, right? So this is the psalm, Psalm 137, probably the hardest piece of text in all the Bible. It says, Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of the poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our our tormentors insisted on a joyful sing. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. I'll end it there, but if, if you um, read that on your own, you'll discover that there's, there's pretty intense emotions in that situation. And it's in the face of fear. And they're saying, how can we be joyful with so much fear going on and so much heartbreak and heartache? The Israelites were in the the worst situation imaginable. How could they have joy? I mean, that's the truth, that joy is nearly impossible in the presence of fear, which most fears are rooted in our thoughts, for us, of not having or being enough. Think about it, a fear of Does anybody have this? A fear of being rejected? A fear of maybe not being able to fight off cancer? Fear of being alone? Fear of not being good parents or friends? Or fear of not being a good Christian? A fear of failure in your your personal or professional life? A fear of losing control or your independence? And ultimately, most of us have a fear of death. Do we not? Everyone fears something, which fear evokes a different response in each one of us. And oftentimes, that's what we see as the worst part of us, sort of our false self, not our true self, comes out when we're afraid. But sometimes, I get the feeling that Christians think that we're just supposed to pretend that we're happy. That we're supposed to respond to the demands to sing a joyful song, because it's Advent when really we're deeply afraid. 
Maybe we're supposed to be happy and gleeful as we face our fears. Like, has any, does anybody remember Ned Flanders? <laughs> Adam's laughing out loud. Ned Flanders is the, the ultimate caricature of what, a, what, what people think a Christian is or maybe should be. Just always, yay, everything's so good. Praise the Lord. Is that joy? Is that what we're called to? Uh, this is clearly disconnected from reality. And I think we can see right through it. But still, fear remains. And how do we respond to it? What do we try to do? I can remember, I'm not afraid to tell you all, I actually do it on purpose to encourage you, if you need it, to, to go to a counselor. I've gone to a counselor many times in my life, and still, I feel like I need a tune-up, emotional or spiritual tune-up. I go and talk things through. In fact, I would say every pastor should have a counselor, <laughs> and maybe a coach, and maybe a spiritual director. Anybody who works in the public sector, I would say, should have their own counselor. And I remember very distinctly saying to my counselor like three or four years ago when I was really having some breakthroughs and I realized, gosh, all the things I don't like about myself come from being afraid. When I'm afraid, I act in this way that I don't like. I said, I just I wanna be, I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to ever be afraid. <laughs> this doesn't happen though, does it? <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever remember that moment, and since then I've been on this journey of trying to understand, okay, fear is going to be there. I cannot change that reality, nor can you. But the real power and the real freedom comes from understanding what we're actually afraid of. What is it that we're afraid of? Because all of us have fears. This is a perfect way uh, to describe the, the truth of the reality of fear. This comes from author and professor Brian Russell. He wrote this in his book on Centering Prayer. As I wrestle with Scripture, I believe that fear is a component needed in our relationship with God. He's a biblical scholar. He says, let's face it, we're all afraid of something. Psychology teaches us that fear drives us. It's the engine that 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 pushes us forward in life. But our fears limit us and shackle us from be becoming the people that God created us to be. In fact, our fears can become in themselves a form of idolatry. Wow. That which we fear becomes a God to us. Think about it. It sucks all of our attention. We fight to make sure that our fears don't actually happen. And so we give more of ourselves to protecting what we're afraid of rather than to God. I imagine that the people who heard Zephaniah's prophecy would be very afraid. The first, it's a very short book in the Bible, and 75% of it is talking about God's coming judgment on the people. The Israelites were yet again proving to be unfaithful, ruled by their sinful nature because they're, of course, human. They're ruled by their desires and their fears. And this prophecy was of coming judgment by God because of the corruption and the idols and the unfaithfulness present in their societies on all levels. Here's just a couple verses. Just get a sense of how would you feel if this was what was pronounced to you that was coming to us. God says to the prophet Zephaniah, I will bring such distress upon people that they shall walk like the blind 
because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on that day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his passion, the whole earth shall be consumed. For a full and terrible end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, that's scary. And it's unfortunately passages of scripture that we don't talk about. Because we like to think of God like the song that I sing to my girls every night. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, who doesn't love that picture of God? <laughs> of course. But to deny God's judgment upon sin is to deny the holiness of God and to deny the power of God. We can't leave God's judgment upon sin out of it. The good news about Jesus is, isn't good news if God doesn't promise to deal with humanity's sin. Otherwise, why do we need Jesus at all? But what is it that God is really angry at? Is it that he doesn't love the people? Is he angry about specific things about the people? No, God is seeking to destroy the presence and the power of sin in and over the human heart. God's wrath is promised to be unleashed as a purposeful move to root out unfaithfulness and idolatry. Clearly, the people have proven that they're not able to do this for themselves. Have you ever tried to stop doing something that you just don't like about yourself or a bad habit? Have you ever tried to do that? I'm guessing you have. It happens to me all the time. <laughs> Can't do it. I, I surrender it to God. I say, God, I need your help. And it still takes a long time. But if you look through the Bible, Adam and Eve, Moses and the Israelites, the cycle of the kings and priests, None of them could be faithful. Not even David, the greatest king of the Israelites. Not even Josiah, who was the specific king of this time, who led a charge, so to speak, a renewal of saying, we're going to get back to basics. We're going to get the, the, uh, the Scriptures out. We're going to worship God. We're going to get rid of all the idols. And even he could not do this job. But God promises through his pro prophets to deal with the problem of sin that he would purify his people and leave a remnant, which is a group of people who would be faithful to God and live according to his will. God's action and victory over sin is the climax of this passage and this book. That God will do what humanity cannot do for itself. God will bring victory over sin, satisfying God's wrath towards sin. A holy God making for himself People that he could be near to. People that he could dwell with. People who could know him and know their love, his love for them. So enter the text from today. Sing and rejoice, exalt, because God has taken away judgment, has turned away our enemies. Disaster has been avoided. Even the Lord will rejoice, not because of not because this is what we're always supposed to do, like Ned Flanders, but because God's people will witness His power and presence, His victory as Lord and Savior. This is the essence of the song that we're about to sing at the end of the worship, at, our, at the end of our worship service. Joy to the world. 
Again, it's joyful news because God has dealt with this problem of sin through Christ. During Advent, we anticipate with joy the coming of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who would make good on this promise. Jesus is. Jesus is the mighty one who would bring victory over sin, who has the power and strength to do what we cannot do ever for ourselves. Jesus proves his might and his strength, his faithfulness, and also his tenderness by taking God's wrath on himself for all people for all time. Our joy as God's people comes through receiving the freedom that Christ has made possible for us. Not by our strength or willpower, not by being good people. History has proven that humanity is incapable of dealing with the problem of sin and evil. Otherwise, wouldn't it be gone by now if we're so enlightened and you know, self-determined? Wouldn't sin and evil be gone? I think history tells the story. So if Christ has delivered us, then we don't have to be held captive by our fears anymore. Again, fear doesn't go away. We're never going to stop being afraid. But instead of fearing all the things that we typically fear, we can determine to fear God alone and say, God, it is You that I want to please. I'm not worried about pleasing anybody else but You alone. I want to see and feel and experience Your power and grace working in my life. And if that means suffering for me, so be it. If that means rejection by me, for me, so be it. If that means death for me, so be it. By fearing God, we can be freed from all of our other fears because only God has ultimate power over us. And you know what God has promised? To never leave us or forsake us. Not in the darkest valley. Not in the most difficult time in our life. Never, ever. The question becomes, do we believe that promise? And will we surrender our intentions and desires so that we can receive forgiveness from Christ, receive healing, and eventually spiritual freedom? So yes, sing and rejoice and exalt. Christ has and will come to save the world. The mighty and faithful King comes as a little baby. We just had a baby in our family. My sister had a little baby boy, and he's just so small. And I thought, this, that's just the most amazing miracle. That our Savior would come like that. Just the little whimpers. You know, just the little flick of the fingers. That's how the mighty and powerful king came to us. It's because of Christ's victory and his love for us that we can be freed from our typical fears. So the the question becomes, what are we really afraid of in this life? What is it that you are most afraid of? And how is that fear keeping us from experiencing freedom in Christ, from walking in His ways and becoming like Him in this life and then bringing others into that spiritual joy? Trying harder doesn't make us less afraid. Maybe the opposite of it, actually. 
receiving Christ's forgiveness and mercy, claiming His victory as our own, that's what leads us to be freed from the captivity of our deepest fears. Christ's strength, victory over sin, and the freedom found in being loved by Him gives us true reason to be joyful, to sing songs of joy and praise in our hearts, even during these days that we find ourselves in, when we're overwhelmed by fears. So if you're alone in your room at home, do you really need to fear whatever else is going on around you? If Christ is with you and is forever with you, do we as a church need to fear any outside element if we believe that Christ is with us and loves us without end? Exaltation, that's what we're called to. What does that mean in the first place? <laughs> I didn't know what that means, so I looked it up. It's just this incredible sense of joy, like uh, well, when we hired our new administrative assistant. <laughs> this is what I'd have to take my mic off. There's an exaltation for you. Gosh, there was so much pressure. There was so much pressure. We needed to find someone and we could not find exactly what we needed. And not only did we find someone, and I'm not trying to embarrass her or say anything less to people who didn't get the job, but it was someone who could do things that we would have never imagined we could get for that position. So yes, I, I probably scared my dog. I was at home. <laughs> I don't remember the last time that I cried out like that of pure joy because I felt that that was God's power and grace working not just in my life, but by the way, in all of yours. That God had rewarded us for being faithful and said, if you commit to the right things, He will bring the people in that you need. That's what led me to exaltation so that we could continue this great tradition in this church. So that we could bring others into the life that Jesus offers us. The abundant life of joy. Maybe you don't connect with that example. And that's okay. Let me tell you one from movies. I'm trying to, on a day off here and there, I'm trying to watch a movie because I, li- I always used to like movies. One of my favorite movies of all time, I won't tell you the name of it in case you haven't seen it. I don't want to ruin the ending. There's a man who... Uh, is wrongly committed for a crime, uh, double homicide. And he goes, and so he gets a, a double life sentence, and he's thrown in this prison, and it's terrible conditions. He's abused. Uh, he's treated in, with great injustice. And even at some point in the movie, they, they discover clear evidence that he was free, that he, that he didn't actually commit the crime. But the warden of the prison decided he didn't want to let him go because he had turned into a great asset within the prison. So right before the climax of the movie, the main character says, you know, you either have to get busy living or get busy dying. In other words, he wasn't going to be afraid anymore. And he plotted his course for escape. Pretty risky. Right? If you get caught trying to escape a prison, they'll shoot you. And so he makes the plan and 
He gets everything just right. And in the last leg of the escape, he has to crawl through a tunnel just big enough to shimmy your shoulders through. It's a sewer tunnel. And he crawls through 500 yards of that sewer tunnel to freedom. And he gets out, and in the, the, the most dramatic climax maybe of any movie, he emerges from the end of the tunnel, it's pouring down rain, thunderstorm, and he rips off his shirt, his soiled clothes, and he stands there like this in the pouring rain as the filth washes off of him in pure freedom and exaltation. All of the injustice that had been done to him, all of the horrific things he had experienced are gone. And his freedom now lies before him. Friends, that is joy in Christ. That is the joy that we are called to live with. Not Ned Flanders' joy. Not joy rooted in our power or control or money or stuff or anything that we could ever do, but only because of Christ. Only Him. Our joy as God's people comes through receiving the freedom that Christ has and will make possible for us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, if you are really with us, if your love for us is unending, as you have said time and time again yourself, and through your prophets, through the apostles, and through pastors throughout history, God, if that is really true, then why are we afraid? Why do we seek so many other things rather than You? Only You know the answers to those questions. God, we can't even answer them ourselves without fully surrendering ourselves continually time and time and time again to You so that You could reveal what's truly in our hearts without comparison to others, without the charged emotions that we have about our fears or anything else in life, that Lord, as we reveal ourselves to You, You reveal Yourself to us. You shine light into our hearts. 
And sometimes when that happens, we see things we don't like about ourselves or about other people. That's why the promise of your love, your unending love, your prevenient grace is so powerful. Jesus, we pray that during this Advent season, we could take each of us a hard look at ourselves and say, what are we afraid of? And how can you speak to those fears? How can you teach us and empower us to live with joy, rooted in freedom, in eternal freedom with you? Jesus, we pray all this in your holy name.